are you looking to modernize your veterinary practice by offering virtual care to pet owners? Fortunately, there's an easy solution from the podcast sponsor, Medici. That's M-E-D-I-C-I. Medici is a telehealth solution built for veterinarians. I've made it easy to check out Medici with a link in the show notes, or you can head over to their website, medici.md, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. Medici lets you text, call, and video chat with clients with their easy-to-use app. Send or receive images and videos of pets, stay VCPR compliant, and get paid, which is always a wonderful thing, for delivering convenient care right from your phone. Hi, this is Dr. Aaron Smiley, and I've offered telemedicine to my clients since I started. In 2017, I integrated paid telemedicine with Medici. Ready to go virtual? Visit Medici.md, that's M-E-D-I-C-I dot M-D, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. And with that, here's the show. Hi, I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Saloy, Chief Economist and head of the economics division at AVMA. Dr. Saloy, thanks so much for joining me. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you. Me too. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I feel like most people, and I've I've put it out there a couple times on LinkedIn, should should follow you because of the massive amount of information. And I love the graphics and the infographics and the links to, to content, but I love the title that you've put in. I use economics to translate data into insights for healthier animals, people, and planet. It makes me like want to go back and redo my title because it's not nearly <laughs> as exciting as, as yours. Uh, thanks. There's a, you know, you just watch what people post on there and you, there are like these LinkedIn megastars, right? Like people who have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of followers on there. And it's kind of like trying to follow their, their lead, right? Like what are they doing to be so successful to generate some, some following? And, you know, I, I saw, I, I can't remember who, it was great advice when it comes to that, that byline. Like it's like the first thing people see and the guidance was don't tell people who you are. That's what your profile is for. Tell people what you do in a sentence. Like, what do you do? And so I just thought long, long and hard about it. I just, I love the concept of one health, especially as it relates to the veterinary profession. So I was like, there it is. This is what I do. Perfect. And I was fortunate enough. We had a conversation before the AVMA economic summit and your encouragement was really what pushed me to, to get up to Chicago and and, and see all that and really learned a ton. And I think what you and the team put out there was fantastic. And I would highly, highly recommend anyone that can go to, to see that. But one of the quotes that you had in your opening was, if you dislike change, you're going to dislike irrelevance even more. Yeah. Can you tell me the meaning behind the quote and in the relevance to veterinary medicine? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and first of all, thanks for that, um, that positive compliment. We're really really proud of that event. Um, we're really trying to transform how it is and the look and feel and the experience of it. I think for many economics can be like this daunting subject, right? Like um, you can certainly kill someone with all the economic data just endlessly and just with a ruthless onslaught, but you know, there's no value in that. So we're really trying to leverage the field of economics, which is, it's just this powerful social science that I'm so, so deeply passionate about. And not just present the trends and the data, but really trying to lead towards action. Like, what are you supposed to do with this information? You know, we're really good at doing and explaining the what and the so what. Like, what it is that you're talking about and the so what is is why it's important. And we're pretty quick to, to come to those answers. But the hard part is like the now what? Like, what are you supposed to do with this information? What action are you supposed to take? And really trying to push ourselves that with every presentation, report, meeting, that if anything, we leave the audience, the reader, the listener, 
with just this profound sense of what the now what looks like. Because otherwise you just struggle with it, right? It's just a pot of information. So really trying to trying to be more. But the quote, yeah, I love that. It's, uh, it, I, I realized it was at the summit, I misquoted the person. I get the person right, uh, General Sinseki, but he wasn't, uh, he wasn't in the Marine Corps, he was at the Army. So I'm just going to publicly declare that correction there, and it's corrected on all my future slides. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just get that out there, take this opportunity to declare publicly that correction. But, you know, I, I, I love this. So if you dislike change, you're going to dislike irrelevance even more. I think I just the simplicity of it, right? Because uh, I think it just so simply tells you what will happen if you don't change, right? Like it's not a threat. Um, it's not an ultimatum, but it's just sort of a, an invitation, like a wake-up call that not doing something, not changing, not adapting, has consequences too. And and I think just just reflecting on the wisdom in, in a lot of these types of quotes, so many smart people have, have come before us, and you find a quote like that, you just you, you grab hold of it because it's good to reflect on on that and the wisdom in it. Obviously stuck out and, and stayed with me post-economic summit, so that's one I really liked, and I appreciate the overview, and I think it it is absolutely a choice to do nothing, just like it's a choice to, to make a decision. Doing nothing is still a choice. Absolutely. And sometimes it's okay to do nothing, right? Like sometimes you just need that downtime um, to, to think and, and reflect. But I think it's always good to be, to be forward looking as well. So when you take those moments and you have those pauses, which are so important, that you're also thinking a little bit around what's, what's my next step? What, what, what do I have to do next here? Yeah. And the same thing, just going to any conference and you can hear a lot of information and then it's like, how do you take all these different things? And it's not saying you have to change everything that you do. That would be a fool's errand, but what is the one or two things you can take away from maybe new information that you've been presented with and slowly uh, start to make those changes and then, you know, find the balance of what can you actually do and accomplish versus, um, you know, don't get carried away doing all these changes and then end up harming yourself more than helping. Yeah, uh, that's so true. And I really like what you just said around those slow changes, because I think we often get into this this mindset of like, you know, the change has to be big and it's got to be bold. And surely there are circumstances that call for that kind of change. But when you're talking about, you know, how to have a more successful career or a more successful practice or just a more successful relationship with with friends or spouses, sometimes it's like these these small changes that that make all the difference um, difference in the world. And so, it, it, you know, sometimes just simplicity and picking up the simple rules and, and trying to stay true to them and rolling with the small, uh, it can be, it can be impactful. Yeah. And I, I mean, we've already talked about LinkedIn to, to start the, uh, the show and you're definitely one of my favorite follows on LinkedIn just because of the, the great content you put out again, really, really encourage people to, to follow you on LinkedIn. Uh, is there anything that you've shared or the team has shared that maybe you've posted on LinkedIn that's a, a recent favorite and maybe why is it something that you feel like is really important or impactful? Ooh, yeah. Um, well, thank you for that. Just here's where I'm going to do another shout, shout out. Like, you know, it's still a little bit around um, some of my my random thoughts that, <laughs> that I put out there. Like, what is it that I'm thinking of this week? Um, what is it at work that, you know, we're, we're working on? What economic article did I see that really struck me? And, the, you know, I think getting a little bit better, but, you know, I had a great conversation with uh, Dr. Wendy Hauser about a year ago. I think it was at, at VLC. And I, I was just posting a lot of these random things like, you know, comparison of, of GDPs across country or population growth rates, the urbanization, just you know, these offbeat comments. And 
was getting some traction on that. And Wendy said, I really love what you're doing. I love how you're present on LinkedIn, but where's all the stuff related to veterinary medicine? You're our AVMA's chief economist. And it was a, you know, it was bold, right? It was transparent feedback, which I love. Like feedback is a gift. That's another great quote for you. And and when you get it, you know, it's like take that and and do something with it. So it was about a year or so ago they actually tried to just be a little bit more, maybe a whole lot more strategic in what I was sharing on LinkedIn, trying to align more with the work that I was doing here at the AVMA on behalf of the veterinary profession than just a reflection of what I was reading or thinking about in my off hours. And it's just, it's been tremendously successful, I think. And what's been really good is the the conversation, the comments that people leave around, well, did you think about this? Like I post a data set and someone will post a question like, well, what about that? And it really does drive a, a lot of what we do. So one example for you is, this was a few months ago, but it was one of, I think, my most successful posts when you look at people who look at it and read it and comment was the percent of pets that don't see a veterinarian. And this is like a chart that's actually buried in our 252-page pet demographic report that we we put out a year and a half or so ago. But it's around one-third of pets, one-third of cats, dogs, birds, horses, something like 50 million animals don't see a veterinarian once a year. And I took that a little bit step further. It was just sort of this this kind of napkin math. If we take the average expenditure per pet that they spend at at a vet visit and translate that to what if every one of those... 50 million pets, what if every one of that one third saw a veterinary at least once? And it, it, it's like $7 billion of veterinary care. So it, it, this is huge for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, it's it's a huge issue for animal health and animal care that one third of our pets aren't seeing a veterinarian once a year, but it's also an economic sustainability issue. $7 billion of veterinary care is not being delivered to animals in need. And, and I didn't expect much from this. I, it's kind of something I put together on the side to use in a presentation. And I and I shared on there and within like a few days, it like it blew up with lots of comments and things. And that's that sort of feedback and that sort of dialogue, I think is just so valuable. Yeah, I remember that post and I think I'm one of the you know many, many comments that were on that. And uh, that was actually gonna be one of my questions is, you know, just looking at the affordability of, of veterinary care and, and getting that right. And we've had guests on prior shows that have talked about, you know, you know membership plans and there's obviously third party providers that can help with letting people still get the care that they want to have for their pets and giving them options as far as how to pay for it and not just saying, oh, you can't pay today or, oh, we can't provide the care. And you hear that also from from the the, the veterinarian or the the technician's perspective of, of, you know, hearing people say they can't do something, knowing that they really want to provide that care, that then maybe they'll go do it for free. And then people start setting expectations of, oh, they'll just do stuff for free. And you, you don't want to do that because again, these are highly skilled people and no one should be working for free. It's like, how can we make this uh, a win-win for every single person and animal involved in the situation and not have the, the challenges and issues of saying no and feeling like the bad guy because someone can't afford it. And I think that also you know leads into a lot of other litany of issues around um, just job satisfaction and mental health. It, and you, uh, at AVMA uh, Economic Summit, there was a lot of good information on that, which we'll get into in a second. But yeah, um, I thought that was a great post and thought there was a lot of good conversation around that. Yeah, thanks. And just picking up when you said, you know, you can't work for free, right? And so this is like classic economics, like this is the role of price. It's a signal of the service or product that you're buying and its value because everything at the end of the day is a limited resource. And if if that resource is free, 
it gets exhausted, right? In a way that you completely deplete it and use it up. And human labor, our jobs are just, they're just like that. And so, you know, you can't give it away for free because then there's nothing left of yourself at the end of the day, right? Um, it's just, it's so important that, but you know, the challenge and what you said is like, I don't know any other profession that has this, this sort of passion and conviction that's associated with being a veterinarian. Um, it's like one of those things like you hear all the time, like, when did you decide to be a veterinarian when I was, you know, eight years old? It's like, well, you don't see that economics so much, right? Like, <laughs> like there's no nine-year-old out there that dreams of one day, like wanting to be uh, an economist. And so, I mean, it's that passion that drives this desire to see every animal have this fulfilling, healthy, happy life. And that's good. And, and I think that's one of the wonderful things around this profession. Uh, I also advocate, though, that economic sustainability is, is also an important part. And, and profit, sometimes in some circles, and we need to get over this, is viewed as this, this bad word. But I think it was Rockefeller that said profit and purpose aren't mutually exclusive, right? Like, in fact, if, in the, if the pursuit of profit is founded and has its foundation in the desire for a purpose, that can actually be a really great thing for society. And that's one of the other things I think economics brings to the table is this, this notion of shared value, right? Like, yes, you can drive the economy and, and drive economic value, but you can also create social value and things like, uh, you know, the Heifer Foundation and, and those types of, of causes, Compassion International, Kiva with, you know, loans to third party, third, excuse me, uh, developing countries, they're looking to generate livelihoods. I mean, these are all just great examples of, I think, of the, of the connection between economics and, and society. I, I've had a couple different posts I've tried to put up on LinkedIn around selling because I think that gets a, a dirty word in, in veterinary medicine and like thinking about compliance and, and establishing a treatment plan of how you're going to do different things. And if you have, again, back to that, like passion and purpose piece, it's not like you're selling them as a negative thing. Like if you're helping get the care that a, a pet needs, like that's really, really important. And, and your job is to explain to them why it is so important. And there should not be a negative that you are compensated for that advice and then subsequent treatment. But no, that was really well put. And I like the the Rockefeller quote. I'm, I'll have to, to store that one in the memory banks as well. Just, uh, you know, error, correct me on that. I'll have to Google it tonight. I'll be waking up in the middle of the night. Oh no, it wasn't Rockefeller. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll figure out. Um, nonetheless, even if it's a, if it's a Dr. Saloy quote, we'll, uh, we'll use that. So, it's all good. One of the other things, and I've had so many conversations around it and it's the elephant in almost every room. We talk about veterinary medicine and sustainability of the profession. And would people recommend getting into the, the business is around student debt. Yeah. And I talked to a lot of people about it have a lot of young veterinarians that I, I speak with. And that's always the first thing that they want to chat about, which I totally understand. And I talk about that all the time that, you know, getting that right, as far as the decisions on how to repay it or, or go for forgiveness, that to them is like the biggest planning issue that they have in their life. What does the research show about the trends and insights in, in student debt? Cause I know that you collect a lot of information around that. Oh boy, we do. And this is just, it's, it's the all capitals issue, I think. And like you said, it's, it's at the root of so many other issues and challenges that the profession is, is facing and dealing with debt, just more broadly financial insecurity. It, it's one of the biggest obstacles in place towards or for a truly thriving veterinary profession. And you don't need to look far to, to understand that. I love the work 
with um, with Merck and and Bracky, AVMA supporter, the, the the well-being study that was done a couple of years ago and recently updated, and they take a deep dive into some of the well-being issues uh, confronting the profession, things like burnout and compassion fatigue and um, um, psychological distress, and looking at the factors associated with that. And it was in the previous study, and this one just underscored it. It's like if you look at the top uh, top factors associated with with low well-being in this profession. They're there, like these issues that we're talking about, debt, financial insecurity, perceived uh, perceived low pay. Um, it's not until you get to number four that you start to talk about some of the more just work-related issues like difficult or challenging clients and, and work-life balance, those kinds of things come up too. But it's like debt and, and stress are like the top two, financial insecurity in there. And so it's it, it's not just the, the challenge of debt that has to be addressed because um, it's tough to, to cope with debt from an economic perspective, but it has these spillover effects, right? Like it's causing distress. It's, it's causing burnout. And, and so we've got to have a better understanding of the drivers around this huge debt load that the profession is, is facing. And so, you know, our data is showing lots of different things. We, we collect so much on this. That I think, first I'll say, I think we're in the midst of a mindset shift, finally. I think recognizing, for example, that financial education or uh, more efforts focused on financial literacy won't necessarily solve this challenge. I think that was a lot of the, the impetus or desire to, well, let's, put, let's institute some financial literacy programs. Let's educate our vet students and the fact that, you know, this is what debt is and some of the some basic financial primers. And I think we've, we've come to understand because the data and the literature and the research, the scientific literature show, and Lisa Greenhill at AAVMC has got a fantastic presentation on this, that, you know, if you want to educate and, in, and increase awareness of finance, yeah, financial literacy will be successful. But if you want to change behaviors and decisions related to financial outcomes, um, financial literacy is not going to do it. So we've got to have a better understanding of the drivers around financial behavior and, and what motivates certain decisions and choices around financial related decisions, like the decision to take on more debt. And the second thing, I think the big thing that data is showing as well is some clear trends in the distribution of debt. Um, notably, we're seeing a couple of things. We're seeing an increase in the share of veterinarians graduating with no debt, which is good in a way. But then we're also seeing a, an increasing share of graduating students with extreme debt levels, like debt to income ratios of like four or more, um, which is just it's 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 it keeps me awake at night thinking about that. And you as a as a certified financial planner, I'm sure there's some rule of thumb here. It's like you know, what kind of debt to income ratio you want to strive to not go above. And so I, I think as we as we look at this data, it's definitely a you know rally call and a wake up call to the issue but also points to things that we need to focus on as we look to develop solutions. Debt to income ratio. I had a conversation with a, an associate in the, in the local area for me in the Indianapolis area. And, and her debt to income ratio was, was north of, you know, four to one. And I mean, for her, there's no way she could ever afford to pay back the, the loans. So for her, it is setting up a process to go for forgiveness and, you know, then there's other conversations around other things. And it's like, she just graduated. She's had so many people tell her, oh my gosh, you're in so much debt and like all this negativity. It's like, she literally started working three months ago and already has this like negative vibe 
I was just trying to encourage her. Like you can still do a lot of great things and, and you can, there's nothing wrong with being an associate and working and doing what you're doing. And if you love work, you can still save, pay, have the student loan debt paid and you can save for that eventual tax bomb and you'll be okay. Life is going to evolve and change. And, you know, she may get married and have kids and all these other things. I was like, but you can still do all the things that you want to accomplish. Don't let that be the like, oh, my, my career's over and I made this big mistake. And that's one of the things that I've had those conversations with other people that come out with, with student loan debt, where they just feel like people have told them they've made a big mistake. And I don't, I don't always agree with that because what they did is they just made a really big investment in themselves and knowing that their skill set is valuable, which I want to transition into the like kind of tight labor market and, and associates, but real quick on the, the debt to income ratio, it's like, you know, if it's one and a half times or below, it's like refinance, pay it down, get aggressive. Sometimes people under two, two to one, it is all going to be dependent on their life situation. Do they have a spouse that earns a high income? Do they have a spouse at all? Like all these different things that they want to do. Do they want to be an owner? Do they just want to be an associate? And it, it plays a big role, but yeah, going back to what I said earlier, Student loan piece planning as a young veterinarian is super important to, to get that right and understand what your options are and then make that selection. I'll highlight the episode two with Travis Hornsby, student loan planner. Um, if you have those you know, deep concerns and want to get more information, he's a, a vast wealth of, of resources and it's been talked about you know, a lot. And he actually has more posts on his website around veterinary medicine than any other profession. So that just tells you how big of an issue it is but it's also an opportunity, I think, for people to, to understand better. Absolutely. And and I'm a big advocate for your profession. I mean, financial planning and financial advising, because there's so much value in understanding and, and getting help with your personal finances that you as a trained professional in the space can give. Um, and I think, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that we can make coming out of a situation like this with, with debt levels like this, it's not asking for help, right? Like, if you don't have the answers and why should all of us have all the answers all the time? We, we can't like, you know, this hopefully doesn't come across as a contrived example, but it just reminds me and fitting of this, like just this morning, my, my oldest son, like I, I hear stomping like elephants upstairs in the second floor as he's charging from one room to the other and slamming a door. And I go up to see what the problem was. And he was having trouble building this Lego. It was just, it was just so frustrated. Like it wouldn't look, according to the directions and he didn't know what he was doing wrong. And so he just threw it on the floor, creating a, a worse mess and was just like on the verge of tears. And you know, you, you want to, you know, part of your reaction as a parent is just like to snap at them. Like, how dare you slam the door? This is my house. But you know, I remember that's not the kind of dad I want to be. You take a breath and you just, you try to understand their frustration. And bottom line was, well, you know, I was right downstairs. Your mother was just in the next room. Why didn't you ask for help? And I think we forget about that. Like we all need help sometimes. Um, and, and there's no mistake in asking for help. The mistake is not asking for help. I think we're, we're starting to come out of that in terms of like, you know, mental wellness and well, mental well-being. Like there was a little bit of a stigma and maybe in some ways it still is. But I think we would all advocate at the end of the day, like if you're having struggles mentally or psychologically, this is when you ask for help. You don't try to solve it yourself. And I think, well, finances are no different, right? Like we can't be experts in everything. So if you're struggling with that, that's why a certified financial planner or advisor, they exist for this reason to help you through that. So thank you for what you do. No, I appreciate that. And that's a really good example of just illustrating how sometimes 
we can be, because I, I, I can certainly attest. I'm certainly your son in, at different points in my life where it's just like <laughs> frustrated. I just don't want to do this. And instead of, you know, reaching out to someone that actually could be super beneficial. Um, a good example for me is I'm not super handy. I always say I'm like the anti Tim, the Toolman Taylor in my soon to be brother-in-law is a plumber, super handy. So anytime I need anything like that, I'm like, Hey Josh, will you come help me with this? And at first it's like, you don't want to ask for help because that's like embarrassing. But my wife knows it now too. Like Isaiah is not <laughs> Mr. Fix it. So right, right. I, just, I just say, Hey, uh, can you come over and help when you have time? Yada, yada, yada. So. Oh yeah. goodness. I'm, I'm with you like that when it comes to home repair, <laughs> you know, like, but thankfully we live in the day and age that we do. Right. Like my wife wanted me to change, replace a toilet in our a bathroom upstairs. And I, I'm like swallowing in my pits in my stomach, like replace a toilet. Like, what are you talking about? Like we got to, we got to hire a plumber for that. But you know what? You, you you go on YouTube, you watch some videos, you go on Vimeo, homedepot.com has videos that do it. You watch, you spend some time studying and reflecting, learning from the achievements and, and instruction of others. And, and you can do that. Like we live in a great day and age for that. And accessibility to all these resources is so wonderful now. So, and it's easy to become inundated, right? Like there's so much stuff online when it comes to managing your finances and, and a household budget. And, and how to invest for your future and your retirement. But I think, you know, let's just not forget the importance of having a conversation and reaching out to those resources because they can be, just be so instrumental. I read a stat that we create more information like the past two years than we did in, in all of human history prior to that. And just how yes. much information we consume is, is massive because there's so much noise in our day-to-day -day life. But real quick, another kind of question that goes along with the student loan piece a little bit is, tight labor market right now. I continue to hear, and even at the vet partners meeting earlier on this year that I went to, finding a good associates, attracting and retaining talent, such a challenge. What yeah. is the, the research out there to look for? How do you attract and retain? Like what's important? Or are there areas where it's easier to find uh, good quality help? And where is it harder? Um, do you have any insights or input on that topic? Oh yeah, and that's a that's a hugely important one, right? And as I go out and talk with members of the the profession, practice owners in particular, you know, you ask them what what the biggest challenge is, and you know, most of the time it's it's the same thing you hear, like you know, hiring, whether it's a veterinarian or um, veterinary technician, it's it's getting getting the talent in place that's the right fit for their practice too, because it's not just the person and the expertise you need, it's that fit like between the culture of the practice and just, you know, shared personalities and mentalities and things. And you want to throw all that together. It's, it's difficult. You know, the, for your listeners out there, there's a great article on, on Vin um, written by Edie Lau. And this is just a fantastic writer um, on this tight labor market. And is there a shortage of veterinarians or is there not? And she took, you know, the perspective of some, some key in industry opinion leaders um, and, uh, and, uh, and then talk to me. I'm not, I'm not, I won't pocket myself as a key opinion leader, but there's some really smart people uh, in that article. And she just tells this really great story. And there's no easy answer to that, I think, at the end of the day. But I think, you know, one of the things that came out of that piece, which, you know, I would strongly believe in as well, is that it's not all about the money and trying to attract uh, someone into your practice or, or hiring. And I think we're we're a little less evolved here in, in, in the veterinary side, but the rest of the world is, is here. It's like, you've got to create an attractive work environment and it's not just the salary. Uh, yeah, that's important. We're all humans and motivated by what we bring home to the table to support our families and so forth. But, you know, 
like a going back on veterinarians and the passion that's never rooted in that, right? Like, I don't know the veterinarian out there that said, I chose to be a veterinarian because I want to be rich, right? Like, where is that person? They're, they're driven. This profession is driven by a lot of other things. And so you've got to create an attractive work environment. And it comes down to all the other things outside of, uh, outside of salary. And when you talk to the younger generation, you hear what, what's important to them. Like, they want training. They want opportunities for growth. They want good leadership because they want to grow to be a good leader. And so they're looking for mentoring. And I think as you look to attract someone into your practice, those are the things that you can really dial up or dial down on and, and make a difference. It's, it comes down to demonstrating a better value proposition because going into practice isn't the only option for our graduates today. There are so many options right now. Uh, um, just look at the One Health platform I mentioned earlier around just this this concept of of one health and the intersectionality of of animals people and planet like whether you're talking about environmental sustainability or the role of animals in human nutrition or just the health of the animal itself like there's an intersection of this and i don't think there's any other field outside of veterinary medicine that intersects all three of those so well and i think society companies organizations have taken root of that. They've taken understanding of that. And there's so much demand for veterinarians now outside of just the practice. They can go and do so many other things. And so they don't have to just go and practice medicine anymore. There's so many other options for them. So that's why it's just so important for the practice to, to up how it demonstrates that value proposition for a young graduate to come into work into the practice. The other piece that I that really stuck out with me, and again, it was again, the vet partners meeting, it it like came back around and I heard some differing opinions on on their thoughts around it, but you presented some really information, really good information. And when I say you, I mean you and the team, because it's not, I can't remember which presentation was presented by who and who did the work kind of behind the scenes, but the team presented great information about the utilization of of staff and technicians to improve efficiency in the clinic. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because again, for me, I look at the the dentistry model because I do have a focus in working with veterinarians and dentists. And I see that, you know, hygienists, they're highly oh, independent yeah. and efficient in how much they can do. And then you look in veterinary medicine and so many times it seems to be closer to this, I don't want to call it micromanagement, but that's what it feels like where they don't allow really bright, smart, intelligent people to flourish and do as much as they, they can and want to. And they don't see the benefits of some of the skill they have on their team. Yeah, that's, ooh, this is a good one. So one of my, one of the statistics I'm really going out there with right now are like these three realities facing the veterinary profession. One of them just mentioned that the one third of pets that aren't seeing a veterinarian every year. Um, as we talk about the workforce, the, the, the other number is 10. In 10 years, something like 40,000 veterinarians will be retiring, which is going to just change the whole culture and mindset of this profession as as the boomers look to enter into retirement and the millennials enter up into leadership positions. The, the third one is a 60%. So one third, 10, 60%. 60% of veterinary practices are not thriving. They're not thriving. And you look at the distribution of practices and performance, like on the whole, you look at the big picture, right? Like things are good. Revenue is growing uh, and, and profitability is expanding. You see some some double digit growth. But when you look at individual practices, you zoom down, you put everything under the microscope 
yeah, you know, th- there's a good portion of practices that are experiencing that double digit growth in revenue and, and maybe even in clients as well. But when you look at it at a practice level, you see around 50% of practices are not growing. They've got zero to, to one or 2% growth, just barely keeping pace with population growth and inflation, or even worse, they're contracting. They're, they're, they're losing clients every, every year. And we calculate an efficiency index. We survey practices. We get around 1,000 or so practice owners answering the survey. And we look at all the inputs into their practice. And this is you know, part of the fun of being an economist. You get to translate these data into neat, tidy little indices, right? So everything can be compared on a zero to, to 100 basis. I'm being a little glib because I know the world's never that perfect. But this is what economists like to do. They, they try to build models and make comparisons. And that's part of the value there. And we see that, yeah, like we've got our top performers, right? Like maybe 15 to 20% of practices are operating in that high efficiency space. And we've got, you know, another another 20 or so that are 20% or so that are in this mostly okay zone. Like if you were to score them, they'd score between 70 and 89, right? Like that's not bad. But the vast majority, 50 to 70% of practices get an efficiency score of less than 69, 69 or below. And so they're, they're struggling. Like there's just... They're inefficient, like they're leaking water, like a, like a sieve. Um, and I think that's just a rally call. Like, yeah, we all want to grow and, and increase revenue and clients, right? That, that's, that is important. But it's also like how effective you are translating your inputs in, into, into those outputs, like revenues and, and number of patients seen. Um, and this is where we pick up on what you just asked was like one of the biggest things we're seeing is just what's driving that inefficiency yeah, there's some low-hanging fruit like inventory management and better inventory control and so forth. But the more challenging one is leveraging your staff, right? Like we see that the top performers have a better ratio of technicians to DVMs. Like they they have more technicians. And more than just having the number, they leverage them better. Like they're doing the medical stuff, right? They're not just answering phones or doing paperwork. They're in there supporting the surgeries. And so it's just, it's so critically important that we look at this and, and advocate like, okay, you've got to delegate more, like leverage, leverage your staff so that you, the veterinarian can, can do more because your staff can do more. Yeah. And I know one of the, the pieces of feedback that I heard out, out in the hall was, you know, so many veterinarians, like it's their uh, license at stake and giving more ability to have techs or staff do more again they need to be trained and that's a whole different discussion and we don't have time to go into everything but i think right. the hesitation is you know a it's probably the we've always done it this way and and this is what i do and this is what you do but also the the fear of the repercussions if something would go wrong if, if they're empowered to do more that the blowback comes back to the veterinarian and again that's the the high level that's the isaiah that's not a veterinarian hearing people that are in the in the field talking about this but that was the one big piece that I think people have tried to push back on and they feel like there's still not that answer. So I don't know what the perfect answer is, but I would completely agree that utilizing and being efficient with your staff and empowering them to do more, you're going to a have probably happier people and you're going to have a better practice. Absolutely. And I think we all, no matter the profession, the person have, have trouble with that, like delegating or, or, or letting go. Like, you know, what I've talked about in my own team, like, you know, we need to integrate better some of the work and the research agendas that we're, we're doing. So rather than each of us divide and conquer and you write this paper and we do, you do that research topic, like we work on it together. You know, one of my teammates said, you know, well, yeah, I, you know, that sounds great, but I like to do my own 
econometrics and my own analytics. I, I like to run the regressions how I like to run them, right? Like, like you, you see this across every profession and, and veterinarians are no different. Like, like I, this was my training. I trained to be a veterinarian. So I want to be a veterinarian, practice the medicine the way I think it, it needs to be practiced. And no one is saying anything differently there. I think what it comes to is like, you know, enhancing the team, developing that, that team work ethic and leveraging the talents of people in the most optimal way. Like, like you said, the training and the talent has to be there and, and no one's saying cut corners, but you brought up the example of dentistry and I think they've mastered this, right? Like hygienists optimize their training and, and can do so much within that dental practice, allowing and freeing the, the, the dentist to, to see more patients and to ultimately at the end of the day, deliver more care to more, to more people. And I think that's what it's about. Not to mention that if you look at a hygienist versus a, a tech, just the the wage disparagement and like the the difference as far as what that looks like. Again, if you're able to be more efficient, you, hopefully then you can pay these people more and that solves some of those other issues. So there's like this snowball effect behind that. Um, that I think is really important as well because so many people talk about how techs aren't paid enough and this is a challenge because they're, you know, again, they go to school, they have student loan debt a lot of times or right. you know, they're just basically making barely a living wage for how much knowledge they actually have. Yeah, that's a great, that, that's a great point. You talked about your team and different people saying, well, I want to do it this way. And, and, and you're kind of like, oh, maybe we don't do that. What, what have you learned in your role as far as developing and maybe building a strong team? I mean, managing a group of PhDs to me sounds really daunting and tough to think <laughs> have your PhD because you can at least say, hey, you know, you know what, but any insights, best practices, because you have a lot of high performing people in that group that I would think you'd have some personality clashes at times. I'd be curious curious just to hear from a management perspective, because I think the the team dynamics in any clinic and hospital is is always a challenge. Yeah, team dynamics, they're just going to be a challenge anywhere, right? I mean, because we're we're people, Um, we're unpredictable and we're flawed. But this is like by far one of the most important and meaningful pieces of work that I do is, is, is managing people. And it's the sort of thing that I'm just I'm just so so passionate about because you know if you look at it like your team the people that you manage have trusted their career to you they've trusted you know people spend eight hours or more a day with you and so it's just it's a huge it's a huge commitment and I think managing a team of any kind creates all sorts of unique challenges just because of the nature of being a human human being so again you know, like we started off with this discussion with quotes and the wisdom of people who have said some really smart things in the past. It's, it's looking to the wisdom that's out there in, in management and leadership and not trying to make it up as you go. I think that's the worst mistake we make. It's like we try to make it up as we go. Um, and you will falter, you will fail, you will make mistakes. And, but it doesn't have to be that sort of struggle because there's great wisdom out there on, on, on managing people and being a strong leader. So look to that. Me personally, I'm a huge fan of Patrick Lencioni and actively work to implement his teachings into, into my team demanding dynamic here at AVMA. So I just, I love the great concepts he puts out from five dysfunctions of a team, death by meeting, five obsessions of an extraordinary executive, and just implement some of that wisdom in a, in a really, in a really practical way. Like one of the things that he's very, very strongly passionate about is good meetings need to have productive discussions. And it's all about the constructive conflict, right? Like if you have a meeting and all it is, is a round of updates from your staff, and then you dismiss like, what a, what a, well, that's going to be boring for everyone who's not talking at that given moment, but it's like, just like a waste of an opportunity. 
the constructive conflict comes in is where you're creating a safe place where people can share their opinions in the most transparent way. Like it, it is, we're not going to agree. A team's not going to agree on a course of action or strategy all the time, but not raising that up and not discussing that as a team is like a huge mistake because you never, you never get agreement, right? Like they might passively say they're, they're on board, um, but really aren't. So you're not going to, at the end of the day, you're not going to get the best out of them. So if people aren't in agreement, you're not, you're not going to have a good team. But it's not about achieving consensus, right? Because that's like unrealistic. But I think it's more around generating alignment. Like even if they don't agree, but they can see the point of view of others and they've had an opportunity to share where they might disagree, but they can get on board, then you've got that, right? And I think it's just opening up and creating that that safe place where people can can share their opinions and know that it's it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay to say that you don't agree as long as the team can get together at the end of the day and move forward. Thank you for sharing that. That's great. And I'll, uh, I'll certainly link to the different books that you mentioned and some of those I'm familiar with. Uh, I think I've heard, but I've not read any of them. So maybe that's something to, to put on the, the read list along with so many others that I need to get to. But, um... <laughs> well, Patrick Lencioni's are really great for e-reading or audiobooks. Like if you're into them, they're really easy to listen to. He tells them the context of a narrative and a story. There's an entertaining element to it. So they're, they're good for that. Perfect. I know we're winding down. One question that I just had to ask is if you could get your hands on a data set that was accurate and clean, because data is hard to get accurate and clean. What would be the the dream? Oh, goodness. And it could be anything. And then how would you use it? Oh, wow. Well, um, well, thinking in the with the lens of veterinary medicine, for sure, for me, this would be data set access to the practice information management software across veterinary practices, the PIMS. And for me, like the goal would be to create an industry-wide resource of economic performance in our practices across a set of like key performance indicators, total revenue, average revenue per transaction, total transaction and others. And, and wanting to go even further than that, like not just have that data, but have it at the individual practice and transaction level so we can get into predictive analytics and better understand why we are seeing the trends we're seeing, right? Like you see this in, in, in some levels in different places, like VHMA, Veterinary Hospital Managers Association, has this fabulous Insiders Insights report um, tracking some of these, like new client growth, um, which you see is down like from period to period. And, and AHA publishes this wonderful um, financial and productivity pulse points report on some, some benchmarks. And I applaud these because these are like these, these are great rich sources of information that I look to all the time. But, but the data is just not rich enough to provide a treatment plan, right? Like, and only give a diagnosis. Um, so take that new client numbers. Like, okay, it's great at showing that trend, but what we need to do is to drill down even deeper and, and understand why those, those new client numbers might be down from period to period or year over year. And, and I think the PIMS offer the opportunity to unlock answers to those questions. Perfect. I love the answer and, and appreciate that. That was that was something that I know is, is hard looking across the industry to get something that's uh, a standard because that's certainly not the case of, of where a lot of data is today. For sure. Uh, but it is a vision, right? Like, so maybe all dreams can happen one day. <laughs> 100%. So the podcast is all around success. How would you define it in your life? Personally, professionally, what does success look like to you? Oh, goodness. Need another hour for that conversation. I use three words to explain myself. It's it's uh, husband, dad, and economist. Those words give me my focus and my priorities in that order. 
And so for me, it's, it's making sure that things are good in all three of those, those spaces. If, if my wife is happy, if my kids are growing up to be good human beings, not that they're perfect, right? Like they don't have to have their room clean hundred percent of the time, although I wouldn't mind that, but if they're good to others and respect others as, as they want to be respected. And as an economist is trying my best to make a difference to leave whatever it is in a little bit better shape than where I found it. Beautiful. No, I, I appreciate that. And um, it's, it's always interesting. Selfishly, I just love hearing people's definitions and, and how they think about the world. So um, other than LinkedIn, is there anywhere else that you would encourage people to follow you? LinkedIn's a great spot, um, unless you want random photos of kids, pets, and food on my Instagram, but <laughs> they're probably not looking for that. Um, I'd say connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, but more than that, I'd love to hear from you, like message me. Uh, what do you want to see being done? What are the important economic questions or issues that you need your AVMA to be focused on? Uh, or just share your opinion on something. Would love to hear from you. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll put your uh, LinkedIn profile link, other information. And yeah, absolutely. Reach out. I think that's a, a great offer that people shouldn't leave on the table. Dr. Saloy, thank you so much for your time today. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. I know there's a lot of wisdom shared and, and look forward to, to getting this out to everybody. Thanks, Isaiah. Really enjoyed the time. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should talk to your professional team before implementing anything. Isaiah is the founder of ID Financial Planning and Wealth Management. Isaiah is a registered investment advisor in the state of Indiana. The biggest compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is a platform that is predominantly how people listen to the show. If you have three minutes, love the show, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us an honest review and rating. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can also subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information and insights and the ability to have your voice heard, please consider joining the private podcast Facebook group. You can search for the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll down to the about your host and click on the Facebook icon. Then I can approve you, let you into the group, and would love to hear from you there. Thanks for listening, and I'll be talking again to you soon.